Hey, Kelly. How you doing? All right. You know, I'm going crazy with all the stuff that's changing, and yep. and that's even setting aside pedagogical issues. Yep. Just like figuring out how we're going to keep people safe. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what we're supposed to do here. Hey, it's Eugene. That was me a few weeks ago getting kind of panicky while I was talking with Kelly Langle. My name's Kelly Langle, and I'm an associate professor in the School of Nursing and Health Professions at University of San Francisco. My training is actually as a health behavior scientist. So I have my master's in public health. I have my, my PhD in health behavior and health education. Uh, and I've really focused on how do we get people to kind of live their healthiest lives and to, to really support them in making the best decisions uh, for themselves as well as their families and communities and society at large around issues of health and wellness. So Eugene, you talked to Kelly Langle in this episode. That's Marilyn Delore, my CTE co-director. Why Kelly? Why did you reach out to her? We first wanted to talk with Kelly because, well, because we, we thought that we might be coming back onto campus. That was the plan. Maybe as recently as a month ago? Was it a little longer? Yeah. No, I, I, I don't remember exactly yeah. when it was. Time has warped. Yeah, time has kind of warped. But up until like relatively recently, sometime in July was when we found out, nope, we're definitely going to be remote. Mm-hmm. But up until that moment, we were trying to figure out how to do high flex and uh, teach students in person, safely, physically distance, and at the same time accommodate people who are going to be all around the world you know, participating remotely via Zoom, and that we were going to do a bang up job in educating all of those people. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there was no pressure. We all felt 100% confident <laughs> about that. But, 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 but there was one small piece that we sort of thought maybe a little bit of, of guidance on would be helpful. And that is what do we need to do with all of these, you know, health guidelines that we're seeing from wherever the news or San Francisco Public Health? And so Kelly, uh, who is sort of an expert on these kinds of things, had uh, headed up this public health working group mm-hmm. with some of her School of Nursing and Health Professions colleagues uh, to come up with some recommendations for the administration. Now, you know, now since then, the uh, the administration has decided that we're going to be completely remote. I, I think with some like very very few exceptions, yeah. but that almost all of us are going to be teaching remotely. I think you and I sort of thought it would still be really useful to know, like, what were some of the things that that public health working group was doing? Like, what was that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was their goal? What was their purpose? What did they try to come up with? And what were their recommendations? Uh, because we want to, well, I mean, eventually, I hope we're going to come back onto campus. And when that time comes, presumably, we're going to want to have some information on, like, how to do that safely. And you've been talking about this whole summer as the scramble. You've been calling it the scramble. With a capital T and a capital S. The scramble. Oh, right. The scramble. As we all (laughs) scramble to try to figure out how we're going to do our jobs come fall. At least now we know sort of what the fall is going to look like, or at least what it's not going to look like. But at some point, we're going to want to come back onto campus. And to help us avoid having to live a life of always being in scrambles, Right? Why not start thinking about some of these things now, especially if there are some recommendations that the public health working group has made that we can start implementing or at least mulling over? I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, just earlier today, my department chair contacted me and asked me for my preferred teaching modalities for spring 2021. So already the gears are in motion. Already. Yeah, for the university making plans for spring 2021. Thinking about doing multi-modalities, offering different options, it all depends on what unfolds with this pandemic and with, you know, potential vaccines, but it does seem like we're going to be in the thick of this for a while. So yeah, I agree. I would love to hear what Kelly has to say so that we can start uh, planning and thinking several months ahead of time. Okay. Yeah. So let's go back to Kelly. 
people with my expertise in, in public health are able to say, okay, what, what's happening with the data? And then translating that into uh, messaging that people can understand. And that's been one of the biggest challenges during this pandemic is really the communication. And communication is so key for getting a handle on the pandemic. And unfortunately, our communication at all levels has not been ideal. Uh, but for people like me who are trained in public health, this is something that we focus a lot on is how do we give people the, the information that they need in order to make decisions that are the best for them as well as the people around them? Yeah. And now the breakdown in communication that you were talking about it seems like it's not for lack of trying. Um, it, you know, there are many groups, including the the public health working group that I'm going to ask you about in just a minute, that have been really trying to help out with this. So tell us, wh- what is the, the USF public health working group? And what was your role in it? And what was the, the working group's goal? So uh, when the pandemic hit uh, in March, and I was talking with a number of faculty colleagues, particularly in the School of Nursing and Health Professions, um, and we were saying, wow, this pandemic is crazy, and everyone's struggling to really understand what's going on. What What is the communication about? What is the data telling us? What are we at the University of San Francisco saying, and what are we doing? And so we talked more about it and decided that we really needed to create a platform where we were able to have a conversation about the pandemic to try and process it and understand it and talk about everything that we were learning about it on a, on a daily, sometimes hourly basis, as well as ideally take the guidance and the data that we were getting and kind of translating that or adapting that for the USF community. So for people to, to really help people try and have a better understanding or help them process all the information that was coming out, as well as to be able to say to our community, hey, these are the things that we as a community need to be doing to keep our community as safe as possible. And that kind of morphed as time went on into a, okay, as we, as we plan to physically reconvene whenever that happens, what needs to be in place in order to keep our community as healthy and safe as possible. And so that was really the genesis of our public health working group. And one of the reasons that it's been this really nice platform for folks across our community is I started it with a colleague on the administration side of USF. And so it was really, it's been very nice because it's this nice uh, platform as well as collaboration between faculty and staff across the university. So as faculty, we can provide our public health expertise and then our administration side is in charge of operations. Right. To make it um, actionable in in some way. Yes. Um, The product or one of the products of that working group was a white paper that, as I understand, was a list of recommendations, but not mandates or uh, policies per se. And we'll, we'll share the entire white paper with our listeners if they haven't seen it already. But could you talk a little bit about that? Like, well, how should we as faculty be interpreting those recommendations? And how, how should that be informing what we do whenever we do come back to campus to teach? We discussed this idea of creating a document that provided brief background information that was really key information that we all need to be aware of. So with our our science of the moment, and we learn more every day continuously, even now, we have a background document to this white paper that really explains how long are people transmissible for. If they're exposed, then what does that quarantine look like for them? Uh, If they get infected, what does isolation work look like for them? And then we did launch into a list of recommendations. Now, the recommendations were cold from every source out there. And this is one of the things that I think worked very well and that I'm I'm proud of actually for our, our white paper and list of what I call the V1 recommendations. So version one of the recommendations. And these recommendations we, we wanted to draft by June 1. That was a date that the um, our administration uh, said, hey, it'd be really nice to have a draft by June 1 so we can start really planning. And especially at that point, we were very hopeful that we would be able to physically reconvene in August on the USF campus. Of course, that's not the case now. 
that is not the case now. But so what we did was we created kind of a roadmap to reopening, different from the the university leadership roadmap to reopening, but a roadmap to reopening to maximize health and safety when we physically reconvene. And that's really what we created in this document. It's not a, a real detailed document. It's kind of high level in many areas, but we tried to pay attention to those areas which are top of mind for the USF community. So students are a huge concern. How do they come back together? What do what do those residence halls and shared spaces look like? Faculty, what do our classrooms look like? How do classrooms need to be set up in order to ensure people's health and safety as much as we're able to? And, and we really focused on those in, in the V1 uh, document. We, we attended to a few other areas too, but it was student-focused, faculty-focused, and a little bit of administration-focused in terms of meetings and things like that, which we actually recommended even, even in, in May that those are done remotely, for example. So, so it was kind of high level. And one of the nice things about those V1 recommendations, they've really actually stood up the test of time. And that's been what's really kind of powerful about them, I think. We did make recommendations around testing. Our recommendations are that when we bring students back to campus to live on campus, that they're all tested um, before they actually move into their dorm. And we also said the same for faculty and staff, all the employees of the university, before we actually are physically on campus, that we are all tested and we test negative before we actually would be on campus. We made recommendations around um, filling out a daily screener, things like that. But the recommendations came from not just the science and the evidence and what we know, but also they're adapted from the guidance from the state level and particularly from the San Francisco Department of Public Health. So whatever guidance they had at the, at, at the time we used, the Centers for Disease Control, they had some guidance for uh, institutes of higher education. And so we adapted that guidance. The National Federation of Teachers Association, they have their guidance. OSHA has guidance. All of that we pulled into this list of recommendations. And even though we are going fully remote in August, at the point when we do physically reconvene, those guidelines, most of them will still be necessary to follow. Not all of them, because some will change, but many of them will be necessary. Well, like you said, the V1 guidelines, you said, at least thus far, seem to have stood the test of time. Um, I think what you're saying is that those guidelines have continued to still be consistent with uh, what is current knowledge. Is that right? That's that's absolutely true. And and take something like uh, wearing masks, wearing face coverings. Yeah, yeah. Right? I was, was going to ask for a for instance. Yeah, that this is a really good example. So masks, as you know, there's been kind of a communication dance around whether masks should be worn by everyone, whether they should be required at what uh, at what either geographic or municipality level uh, has responsibility or even has legal um, the basis for requiring those. So. It's been a very interesting conversation. I think we'll have a wonderful case study in communications around mask wearing once we're on the other side of this pandemic. So in our V1 recommendations, we said that masks should be worn anytime a member of our USF community is indoors. And that recommendation has absolutely stood the test of time. And, and so that's a good example of something where the science has still been evolving. It'll continue to evolve. But even with what we knew in, in May, uh, we made that recommendation. And so that is something that we are absolutely continuing to carry out and that anyone who is on campus at any point is wearing a mask. And of course, the San Francisco Department of Public Health a number of uh, weeks ago, maybe it's been more than a month now, came out and said, everyone needs to be wearing a mask in an indoor space unless you're within a household unit. Mm -hmm. However, that might even evolve more because a lot of our transmission is happening within household units. Uh -huh. When someone is sick, then uh, they often give it to their family members. And that's a big source of transmission right now, unfortunately. But that doesn't mean if you're in your office by yourself, you need to be wearing a mask, does it? No. Okay. No. No. And and one of the things that's interesting that also is evolving and will continue to evolve is what's considered a close contact. Okay. And this is important for our university community. So a close contact is someone who right now, according to the CDC and the San Francisco Department of Public Health, a close contact is someone who you've been close to within six feet, less than six feet between you and the other person. And you haven't necessarily been wearing a mask and you've been within six feet for 10 minutes or more. 
Okay. okay. So you think of it as kind of three, three things, right? Within six feet, more than 10 minutes, and probably not wearing a mask. Okay? okay, but this last one, it, there's still a big question mark whether if you are wearing a mask and you're within six feet of someone for more than ten minutes, then maybe the exposure is let is low. It's it's been lowered enough mm-hmm. if both of you are wearing masks that it may not be called a close contact at some point. Right now it is, but that could evolve as we learn more. And wh- why does that matter? Is that just semantic, or what does close contact then end up meaning for us? So, so a close contact is important because when someone is identified as having a confirmed positive case of COVID-19, then what you need to do is you need to identify those people who are considered close contacts because they're the ones who are most likely to have gotten the virus from that close contact situation. And the only way we're going to get this epidemic under control is by identifying and isolating those people who have COVID and who are transmissible, who are able to transmit it to other people. So how you define that close contact is is key. It's it's absolutely fundamental for us getting a handle on the pandemic and bringing them those transmission rates. So this is really important in a university environment. So for a faculty member, if you're in a classroom and let's say that you have let's say you have 15 students in that classroom and that classroom is set up to be physically distant. So they're at least six feet apart from all the students and from the faculty, from the professor who's teaching that class. If everyone's wearing a mask and you maintain that six feet of physical distance, if you learn that someone in that classroom, whether a student or the faculty who's teaching the class, has a confirmed case of COVID-19, then does that entire classroom of people, are they considered close contacts? Do they need to physically isolate for either 10 days or 14 days, depending on whether they're symptomatic or not? That's a huge question because it's a big burden on people to physically isolate for 10 or 14 days. That's not easy to do. Let me let me play devil's advocate then for just a minute about the face masks in particular. Because if I'm understanding you correctly... Um, the three factors that figure into whether or not there's close contact, the, the proximity within six feet, the, the length of time that you're in close proximity, and then whether or not you had a face covering, it's, it almost seems like there are some redundancies built in there. So uh, couldn't we say, all right, we're going to be very deliberate about physical distancing in the classrooms. We can't make our classes less than 10 minutes. But, um, but if we kept everybody physically distanced, then maybe we don't have to wear masks because everybody is more than six feet away? Um, Isn't that a valid question to be asking? Absolutely. And that's a terrific question. It's something that we're trying to figure out. It's something that in in our science and our research, we're trying to get a handle on. Because wearing a mask, it's something, particularly in the US, we're not used to this, right? And we really, even even those of us who have kind of adopted it, and every time we we leave the house, we put a mask on, it's still not comfortable for us. It's still something that we're we're just, it's hard for us. Now, in a classroom setting, to wear a mask is, is even more difficult because you, your, the faculty is speaking, the instructor is teaching, and they're talking, and the students need to be able to participate and also talk. And so we know that when people talk or when they sing or when they breathe heavily, that if they are, if they are infected with COVID, they, with the coronavirus, they are more likely to be uh, spitting it out, so to speak. And that's kind of how I think about it, is you're spitting out the virus if you're infected with it and you're talking, talking loud you're projecting your voice like we do in a classroom environment. And so if we could get rid of the masks so that people could be heard better and didn't feel like they had to shout so much, then yeah, maybe, you know, that would just be, it would be a better environment for us to be able to teach in. So your question, Eugene, Eugene, is absolutely fundamental, fundamental, it's critical, and it's key. What we know right now and what we recommend right now is that you still need to wear masks in that situation. It's the safest way for us to be physically together. And until we know otherwise, that's what people need to be doing in that, even in that classroom setting. That I mean, that seems fair. Like we, we don't want our plan A to be our only plan, right? Uh, so 
Um, if there are multiple things that we can do to keep ourselves and our students and each other safe, we absolutely should do them. Um, I mean, would the same logic also apply if we find that masks are very effective? Could we then dispense with the physical distancing and say, well, as long as we're all wearing masks, we can still have all the students in the classroom? Same logic, same response? So in public health, we like to say we have a toolkit available to us to protect the public's health. And it's almost never one single thing that's going to fully protect a person's health. And this is a, a very good example of that where these three things combined proximity, wearing face coverings, and how how physically, uh, excuse me, how long you're together for, those three things together right now need to be done until we either have more science, more data, more research that shows us that, you know what, one of those three things is either contributing so much to reducing the risk of transmission or contributing so little to reducing the risk of transmission that you can, you can get rid of one or maybe even two of those things. But right now, Operating under our uncertain situation, our situation where there's a lot of transmission going on, uh, a situation where there's just we we have absolutely incomplete information, incomplete knowledge about how this virus works and how it's getting transmitted. We really need to be doing as many things as we possibly can and using every tool that we have in our public health toolkit. This, to take it back to the recommendations from the public health working group, we really hope that when the our community physically does reconvene, that let's say we're on version three of the recommendations at that point, we really strongly hope that all of the recommendations are being implemented, that the university will implement all of those recommendations. Because again, it's 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 a, a toolkit and we need to be using all the tools that we have at our disposal in order to bring down transmission and make it safe for us to physically reconvene and to keep it safe for us to physically reconvene. And and that's, I think, for coming back to communication, that messaging is really important, particularly in a university environment where we all need to be be just stressing and, and realizing that if when we're able to come back together again, if the virus gets out of control again, we have to shut down again. So then we have to do that 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 hammer in the dance again. Okay, let's pause here for a second. Um, so Marilyn, the hammer and the dance. What what is the hammer and the dance? Because this is something that came up in our discussion, and not everybody knew about. It. I didn't know about it. So yeah, I thought we should call this episode the dance um but it would only make sense if if you were in the know unlike you eugene well but i will be in the know in just a moment right so go ahead so so um there's an author um thomas pueo i think is his name who published a bunch of um articles on medium just as folks in the united states were kind of coming to realize that this pandemic was going to be a big thing it was not yet officially called a pandemic by the world health organization so it was early on and he said why government need to act now. So he was one of the very early voices that took data in China and kind of extrapolated stuff out. He's kind of a data nerd. Um, and so several, you know, he's he's written lots of pieces, translated it to many languages, but one of them was called The Hammer and the Dance. And then I heard that referred to in the New York Times and lots of other places. So it did get some traction. So The Hammer um, in Pueyo's model is the the lockdowns, right? The quarantine, shelter in place, Nobody go out, only essential businesses open, everything closes. Got it. So the San Francisco Bay Area was one of the earliest hammers to be lowered, right, in in mid-March. The dance is the term that Pueyo uses to describe the the opening. And because it's a dance, right, you kind of got to gauge off your partner and, well, what are the infections like and how is contact tracing and what are the numbers? And you might open up a little bit and then have to close down again, which is exactly what we've seen happening in California and around the world. Got it. Okay. Let's go back to Kelly. 
when we talk about this phrase, this is the new normal, the new normal is that the virus is out there and it's it's around you. And so as an individual, you need to adopt those, I call them protective behaviors, right? That protect you, but they also protect your community. And I think for, I think for our student population, part of the communication that we're really not doing great with is to say, look, you want to be back together. You, you really highly value at this time in your life developmentally college is about the being together with your friends right it's about having relationships it's about staying up late you know in the dorm chatting right like all those wonderful things having these great conversations with your professors in their office hours young people want that and and the only way that they're going to have that is if we bring our transmission down you know, I feel like our behavioral science has been really lost since the pandemic kind of hit. And, and we're not really giving enough attention to what, what is the right messaging? What's the right carrot for people? And particularly for our young people, our young people, I feel like they, they get beat up a lot. I, people, I teach adolescent health. This is an area of, of my expertise. And I feel like uh, society at large sometimes are just, they're afraid. We're afraid of young people. We're, we're afraid of our youth. Mm-hmm. So-called millennials, that right? yes, that's right, and and that's a really unfortunate situation to be in, and it's not fair at, at all to our millennials. It's not fair to young people, and and we really need to expect the best of them, knowing that there are absolutely going to be some lapses, just like there are with adults, right? Adults are not perfect either, right? So. Anyway, that's a bandwagon of mine because I feel like we're, we're we we um, we don't we we think the worst of of young people, and that it's not fair and it's not right most of the time. Yeah, we see that phenomenon in so many different places, right? Like not not just in um, in this pandemic situation. I, I think you know where people blame young people for partying and you know disregarding public health recommendations. We've been talking about that for years in the classroom, right? We say, oh, the, the young people these days, they're not taking their studies seriously. They um, uh, they want everything handed to them. It, it, my understanding is that every generation has been complaining about the following generation right. in a similar way for just like centuries. Okay. So, so how should we be thinking about this then? If the responsibility is on us to uh, communicate differently, or frame it differently, or incentivize, motivate our students differently? How do we do that for for something like this that is so important to public health when we don't exactly have the best track record of doing it even in our own classrooms when we're presumably the experts on teaching? That's a great question. And we certainly, you know, we, we don't have all the answers, but what I feel like is we haven't tried much. And and so we, we need to we need to be working with young people much more collaboratively than we're doing. And so a, a couple of things. So one is something that I've even seen it at USF and, and it always bothers me, but it's essentially adults thinking that they know how to motivate young people. Us saying, we know what type of messaging, we know what kind of imagery, we know what kind of words and phrases are going to get people to wear masks and to stay six feet apart. And that's backwards. That's the, that's the wrong way for us to be working. We need to be getting with our students and saying, okay, folks, this is what, this is what needs to be done. And let's talk about what type of messaging, what kind of incentives are actually going to work for you and your peers. And so we kind of, we, we flip it and, and we start with, we start with young people. So that's the first thing is we need to, we need to develop these communications right alongside our, our students and our, our, our youth population. We call it co-design or co-collaboration. And we need to be embracing that much more than we, we currently are during this pandemic, as well as, like you said, in every other area of communal life. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that there's a lot of questions uh, that I've heard from our USF community uh, around implementation and enforcement, right? So, okay, so great. We, the university will implement the public health working group recommendations, but, but what happens if, if I see someone and they're not wearing a mask or if I see people and they're really close together, can I go up to them and say, hey, guys, you need to wear a mask 
and you need to to separate? And the answer to that is probably no, but we do need to tackle that head on and to be very candid that this happens and will happen all the time. And so there's a big question of, well, well, how do we enforce it? How do we, how do we handle that when it happens? And so I would also say we have to bring it back to our young people. We have to say, okay, this is going to happen. How, how do we incentivize young people to, to A, to follow these recommendations, but B, when someone sees a, a peer who is not wearing a mask, for example, then is there something that that peer can actually do to encourage that, that person who's not being adherent to the mask wearing to be more adherent? And so we use a lot of peer education when we, when we encourage young people to, to follow um, public health recommendations, for example. And so we have these wonderful peer education programs and knowledge of how to actually leverage those so that it's youth who are creating a new norm. Young people are so oriented towards their peers, right? And, and because of that, when they see their peers doing things, they're more likely to do those things. And also, if they believe that their peers are going to disapprove of their own behavior, they're less likely to engage in that behavior. And so we have to work with our young people to establish this norm around when you are together, this is what it looks like. And so using using kind of peer-to-peer education and interactions and supporting this, encouraging this social norm. Maintaining behaviors is always harder. Adopting behaviors is, is easier than taking a behavior and getting people to do it on a daily basis. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, right? It's easy to get people to start a new workout regimen, New Year's. Exactly. But then, you know, to stick with it for more than a week. Oh, yeah, that that totally makes sense. That's right. Exactly. And so we get these students on campus, get them to adopt the behaviors, the easy part, but then the maintenance of those behaviors is where we have to be working with our students and, and constantly brainstorming and coming up with new novel ideas around how do we continue to keep that motivation going. And then what happens is it becomes a norm. That's when at one point it will become this norm and we we can pull back on that constant incentivizing and constantly coming up with new ideas for encouraging this this maintenance of the these protective behaviors that students need to adopt. Right, because as as most parents of teenagers will tell you, those social norms are are powerful and are going to override sometimes what stated policies or what the parents tell you or whatever the case may be. Yeah, that makes exactly. sense to try to tap into that. Um, and I think it's really interesting that um, that we should be thinking of the students themselves as the experts on this. Like, what is more likely to actually be effective? It, it, it almost sounds like the administration should have representatives from the student body who are going to be like chiming in, almost like a, an advisory sort of role, uh, instead of just asking them, do you want to be in person or do you want to be remote? And then we'll figure out how to take care of it from here. Oh, and, and, and we've, you know, this is something as a, as a, I'm a behavioral scientist. And so, you know, fundamental to effective behavioral science is that you are working right alongside that the, the community that you are trying to promote healthier behaviors in, that they're, they're your partners. And so you, you absolutely have to, have to figure out how to be respectful of them. And to to recognize them, I like it as you said, as experts in whatever this issue is that you're you're trying to say. Look, that we we need you and your peers to adopt this behavior to change your behavior. So so work with us to figure out how we do that. Tell us a little bit about what these policy recommendations are going to look like actually in the classroom. Like what 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 do our faculty colleagues not quite get in your estimation about what this is really going to look like? It, that's it's a great question and it's it's going to be hard. I think that's the 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 first thing is that it is going to be more challenging and it's going to feel different teaching in the classroom setting. One of the hardest things is that as faculty we 
we are interactive in our education of our students, right? So what does that mean? We move around the classroom. We use our whiteboards or our chalkboards. We have our students work in small groups and we're all often passing among those small groups and, and, you know, listening to them and giving them ideas and whatever it might be. We might have those small groups go up to the whiteboard and be writing all over the whiteboard. And then we might ask all the other students to come on up and look at what's on the whiteboard. So that's going to be the hardest thing for our faculty in the classrooms because we're not going to be able to do all those things. Or if you want to do those things, you're going to have to be very intentional about how you set them up. So those small group discussions with students, right? If you have three to four students, they need to be six feet apart. And so you might decide, well, okay, in that classroom setting, I'm going to leverage technology more than I would if we could all be closer together physically. So you might still put them into small groups, but they might be working on a Google Doc on their laptop. And so there's still some degree of physical interaction. They're a little bit closer, but they're doing it in a safe way. When you have students come up to the whiteboard, you're going to have to space them six feet apart. Or you might just say, okay, two people come up to the whiteboard and work on the whiteboard, you as the faculty are going to have to make sure you're standing six feet away from them. So I really think that the hardest thing is going to be to maintain that mindfulness, maintain that intentionality about where everyone in your classroom, including yourself, is physically. Also, what we see is that people will just, without even realizing they're doing it, they'll pull their mask down just because, you know, it's a little itchy or it's a little uncomfortable or their nose itches or whatever it might be. And they just, they pull their mask down a lot of times, not even realizing that they're doing that. In the classroom setting, we cannot have students or faculty doing that. And so this, I think, to go back to your question of how do we make sure that everyone is is following these policies in a classroom setting, right? That everyone's wearing a mask. You can't eat or drink in the classroom. This is another thing that I think we really have not gotten our heads around. If you need to eat or drink, you need to leave the classroom. You need to go in a place where you are not around other people. And as you know, I'm used, we all take our coffee into the classroom, right? And when I teach in the evenings and you know i load up on my big cup of coffee i'm sipping coffee all day through the classes that's right and that you will not be able to do that anymore right no exception for water it's this it's anytime you pull that mask off right you are potentially exposing other people it's like on airplanes like we say to people if you travel do not eat or drink on the airplane don't do it really just don't do it try your best not to remove your mask at any point from your nose or mouth and what we started to see early on with masks is that if we can get 60%, at least 60% of people to wear masks, then it brings down our transmission rate to to one that are not that reproductive rate that we talk about in epidemiology. So if we can get 60% of people to wear masks all the time, then we can bring our transmission level down. So so in our our panoply, in terms of our public health toolkit, that one is so important. And so not eating or drinking in the classroom, is it's going to be a hard one. How about face shields? Those seem so much more comfortable. They allow you to uh, speak without something like literally covering your mouth. Does, will, will that work? It's a great question. Um, and, you know, this is it, one of my favorite things to do on the internet is actually to see all the different ways that people are coming up with, with physical distancing as well as protecting their own person, right? And there's all these crazy things people have come up with. So my favorite one recently was actually, um, it was a teacher and she took a pipe cleaner, I think it was, and she took a, one of those little um, clear plastic inserts that you put a piece of paper inside and she put the pipe cleaner in like the insert and then she just put it around her head. Sorry, it's, it's hard to explain in an, in an audio format. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. so thinking, oh, if everyone could do that, wouldn't that be great? So what what our, our scientists tell us is that the, it's much better to wear a mask than it is to wear a face shield because the face shield doesn't, it doesn't cover every portion of your face. And the face shield often is open at the bottom. And so these droplets can still get into your nose or mouth. And so I like that idea too. And I think, oh, that's so much better. And people can see your mouth and you're not going to have this muffled sound. Mm -hmm. But right now we don't recommend wearing face shields instead of wearing a mask. And that if you only do one, 
wear the mask, okay. right? In clinical environments, you see people doing both, but that's because they have a they have a lot more exposure to more viral load. This was something I wanted to say earlier. Um, one of the things that we are learning that I think is it's exciting and it's helping us get a, a better handle on where is transmission happening. One of the things that we we're learning about transmission is it's this concept of viral load. And, and viral load is essentially how much virus does someone have? And most importantly, how much virus are they putting out when they're speaking or singing, talking to someone, whatever it might be, if they're infected with COVID-19. And so what we've been able to learn by looking at all these interesting data sources is that people who are wearing masks, even if they're infected, they're putting out much, much less viral load. So they're putting out much, much less virus, right, when they're in these interactions with other people. And so even if someone's infected, if they're wearing a mask and someone that they are communicating with is wearing a mask, that other person might get infected, but it's much less likely that they're going to have a severe case of COVID-19. Right. So I, I guess being infected is um, a yes or no question, but there are sort of varying degrees of severity, and we have the ability to mitigate that too. So that's not, that's something that's important to realize. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, it's kind of exciting because we're learning more and more, right? Is that that this is one of the reasons that masks are just so powerful that that if you are exposed to an infected person, if you're if you're both wearing masks, then the potential that that uninfected person gets it, it's still it's still pretty high, but the severity of their illness would be much lower. You, you know, what I would love to do is sort of be a fly on the wall in your first classes when you reconvene with the physical classroom. Because I just get the sense that as much as we think ahead to the adjustments we're going to need to make, there are just things that are not on most of our radar screens. Um, and so what are some of the things that you're going to be doing, if you could share with us, uh, or advice that you would give to people who are, you know, preparing for on the ground teaching, whatever that's going to be, for us to be thinking about in advance, because so much of it seems like such a logistical challenge that we only would stand a fighting chance if we can think about it, you know, sooner rather than later. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's a great question. So I think the number one thing is to plan. Right. And to, and to really try uh, and visualize yourself in the classroom. And, and I know that CTE um, was planning to do kind of classroom tours for faculty who are going to be in the classroom. And when we're, when we are able to be in a classroom, definitely take one of those tours so that you can get a, a very clear picture of what the classroom setup is going to look like. I've had the advantage that I'm in the office um, a little bit on campus. And so I've actually been able to go into classrooms that are physically distanced and I've been able to stand at the the podium where the faculty is designated to stand and to look out to try to say, wow, this feel, it feels very different. And so I think, first of all, you need to plan. Second of all, realize it's going to feel different and try and, you know, be in that classroom when you can before you have students so that you can, you, it's almost emotional in a way because it makes me sad as someone who, who loves being in the classroom setting and gets so much energy from, for teaching in person. When I stand in this classroom that is physically distanced, I, I feel, um, I feel almost lonely as a faculty because I know that I'm not going to be able to have that same degree of close interaction that I have with my students and that they're not going to be able to have it with each other in that classroom setting. And so I think just kind of letting that emotion wash over you first can be really helpful because then when you actually start teaching with your students there, you've already experienced that a little bit. It's been a little cathartic. You, you can sit with it because you know you're going to expect it. You know what that's going to feel like a little bit. So so that's something. And, and I think it's great for CTE to, to offer that, that to have a classroom tour when we are able to do that. So then the next thing that I would suggest is that everyone use um, use your Canvas site and provide a list of, of what are the classroom policies and write those up on your whiteboard and talk about them so that you get them out in the open. And at the same time, faculty need to provide a, a platform. They need to provide a space for students just to talk about how it feels to be back in the classroom when that happens, because that's 
going to be really hard and very strange for our students too, just to kind of acknowledge that this feels weird. And yet at the same time, everyone's really excited. And so to, to start your classroom with those kind of rules of, of, of engagement, rules of being in the classroom that we all agree to respect and abide by, we might come up with some kind of, some kind of game or something around how to, how to talk about that. And what we are going to find is that at first, everyone's going to be really good at abiding by all those classroom rules. And then what's going to happen is the longer you're in that classroom setting for, we're going to see more lapses. And so I think it's something that um, we always need to be reminding and working with our students on we always need to be doing this. It doesn't, it, we don't do it once and we're done. We have to do it every minute that we're in the classroom for, unfortunately. And we have to do it for every class that we have together with our students. And so I think that just to be, be transparent about what this is like is really important. And to always be providing a space for our, our students to, to process it. And that serves as a reminder of why it's important to follow these policies and what they are. That's great. That's great advice. Um, we are, as a faculty, I think very innovative, but we do need the time to plan. Um, so not underestimating that. Uh, the second thing is inviting the students to be kind of the experts of like, what's going to work like for us, for you? And then the third thing was sort of reemphasizing what you had said about it might be easy to start with some new behavior for a little while, but how do we maintain that? How do we keep it fresh? Um, how do we make sure that uh, we're able to leverage those social norms so that it becomes something that we're not having to think about as an ongoing right. It will become thing. automatic. Right, right, right. There's been conversation around, well, should students sit in the same chair every time, like at the same desk for every class? And we might recommend that they do that. There's a lot of little things, but we, we, have, to, we have to get behind them. We have to know what they are. We have to get familiar with them. You know, the, the planning is so important. I mean, I know that I have a, a plan for every class that I teach, I, you know, how much time it's going to take, what the activity is like, how I set it up, things like that. And I actually think that that we as faculty need to kind of adopt that that planning for teaching if we're not already doing it. Because if, if we don't, then we're going to fall back on what our default is, which is to have these more interactive, very energetic classrooms. And unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do that. We're going to have to figure out where's the energy, how do we get the energy in the classroom, right? Because it's going to be different energy. And yet at the same time, it's super important that that students are highly engaged and faculty are highly engaged with their students learning. And so however that looks like, it's going to, it's going to look differently. It's going to feel differently. I'd like to just say one other thing. I think it's important for us to be back in the classroom physically. Um, I think that our, our young people need that. Like developmentally, we're you know, students are at, we need to be in the classroom. And, and, you know, you asked Eugene earlier, why did I create this public health working group? That's one of the reasons for me, it came from a slightly selfish area where, you know, I, I want to be back in the classroom. I love being in the classroom and teaching and I get a lot of my energy from that. And so anything that I can do as a public health expert to support us being able to be back in the classroom is important, but it's really important for our students because developmentally they're they're what we call emerging adults this period between like 18 and 24 where they're really transitioning into full-on adulthood and those relationships learning how continuing how to navigate and form relationships is is one of their key uh, developmental tasks their whole identity development a lot of that comes from this in-person interaction and so I just I want to leave by saying I, I'm hopeful we're gonna we're gonna get this there, the sooner we can get there, then the better it's going to be for our youth. But but let's also remember that we need to respect them and work with them at our sides instead of just dismissing them or telling them what to do. It's not that finger wagging with them. It really is saying, look, work with us because it's what you want and it's what you need. So let's do this together. We're all in this together. So I think there's some I think there's some um, some force to that. That. Makes a lot of sense. The, the recent recommendation by the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, trying to weigh, you know, public health versus the development of of children, 
I guess it never really occurred to me that that applies very similarly to emerging adults. Um, Plus, we have the additional benefit of being able to work a little bit more directly, partner a little bit more directly with our older students um, to help set those norms. I imagine for, you know, in kindergarten, you maybe couldn't enlist them quite so directly to to sort of help establish classroom policies, although maybe there's there are ways. Yeah. Yeah. To sort of get them invested in what's going on. You know, young people love to take on leadership roles. And so these peer education models are often very powerful because of that. They like feeling like um, they're teaching other people. They have a role in, you know, making things good for everyone. And I think that that's, we see that at young ages and we see that, you know, all the way through adulthood and certainly with our young people who are USF students. You know, a lot of them choose the University of San Francisco because they really do want to be these change agents. You know, they really do want to make the world a better place. And so this is where to come back to messaging, I think there's a lot of messaging that we can explore and investigate with particularly our USF students that really would be highly motivating, highly encouraging for them around adopting these community protection measures, around adopting, you know, these behaviors that we need them to adopt in order to keep themselves healthy and in order to keep their communities safe. Thank you, Kelly, for taking the time, for sharing your expertise and your perspectives with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I, I, um, I am a fan of these conversations, and I appreciate you reaching out to, to hear some of our public health perspective on us getting back together, what that means. So thank you, Eugene. So this has been a longer episode than what we usually have. But Marilyn, any thoughts or reflections that you want to share? Well, one of the things I love that Kelly talked about is, you know, her specific area of expertise, which was engaging young people in communications, right, in creating those campaigns. So again, not that um, the the folks doing the research, right, and the professors in public health have the knowledge and know right how to dispense it, but rather, you know, have the knowledge, have the research, but then reach out to students and say, hey, how can we best communicate with and reach, right, and appeal to your generation? It might be a social media app that we old dinosaurs don't even know about. (laughs) Or it might be, um, you know, engaging, uh, I don't know, a meme or a slogan or a celebrity or I don't know what, I'm an old dinosaur. But to, to, you know, get our students involved in the making of the messaging as well, I thought that was brilliant. I I totally think so. And what I also really liked about it is, how convicting that was for me about my teaching generally. Because for this, I was all on board. I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. Of course, they are going to be best able to tell us what buttons are going to you know, work best, right? And like, why though do we resist so much when our students in our classes say, these are the buttons that are going to work best? And we're like, no, 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 no. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm going to teach it to you in this way. Like, why do we do that? You know, um, I mean, I do it too. So I'm not just like pointing the finger at anybody. Yeah. And and then we say things like, oh, they just don't want to learn. They're lazy. Look, they're the ones who came to college to <laughs> to learn this stuff, you know? So yeah. Um, yeah. So I found it very convicting. Kids these days. Um, I mean, I guess it's sort of a, it's a cliche, right? For older generations to shake their heads and wag their fingers and blame the young, younger generations for whatever is wrong in the world. But I really do think that that young people today, even pre-COVID, have so many more distractions and things pulling them in multiple directions. And then we have all of this sort of political division and unrest and important activism happening, right? So, so this challenge to kind of, you know, focus. And then now with distance online learning and all of the public health challenges. I mean, my hat's off to those students for for being able to proceed and engage. And, um, and, and I think that, you know, Kelly's thinking and what you just said about engaging students and, and maybe checking our egos a little more intentionally and asking our students to take kind of a, an authorial, creative, contributive role in our, in our classes, That's, that goes beyond just public health messaging for COVID. Right, right. And, and there is a balance, right? Like even in this COVID safety context, if a student said, oh, I'm so glad that you invited me to be a part of the policymaking 
committee. So my my suggestion is that we just like not wear a mask, you know, live life like YOLO and we do our own thing. So then we would say, <laughs> no, that's that's not a good idea. But that would be fuel for somebody saying, see, this is why we can't let the young people get involved in the teaching of it. And I mean, that's a person who would then need guidance. That to me is different from, yeah, 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 yeah. I totally get that we want to all be safe. Let me chime in to help you all understand what are the incentive structures, what is the messaging that's going to really make me want to buy into that. That's different mm-hmm. from saying we're just going to give them free reign to sort of write their own, their mm-hmm. own syllabus. Yeah. That, those are two different things. And I think we, if we conflate those two, it can be really, really easy for us to be like, this is why the kids need my you know, crotchety ways before they can learn anything. I like that voice. <laughs> oh, thank you. This has been going on. I, I gave like a little like short presentation on something tangentially related to this. I think it was about like how the quality of writing has been declining as of late, right? So what I found was that since uh, 1100, some somebody named Egbert of Liege was teaching in, I don't know, like a castle turret somewhere or what, you know, whatever they did that. He'd have to be with a name like Egbert. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he was saying like how... Um, scholarship is in decline like never before. Hmm. This was in 1100, you know, just like how like, oh, like it, it's completely devoid of all substance and merit and wit. And like, I really fear for the next generation. <laughs> Recurring themes. Absolutely. Young people, um, late teens and early 20s, right? Feeling invincible, right? right? They're young and Strong, and they engage in riskier behavior in lots of different ways. Um, it's true, but a lot of these young people who feel invincible are almost militant about making sure that you put the compost in the compost bin and the recyclables in the recycling bin, <laughs> right? And that that's not yeah, for their own for sure. health no. or their own convenience. Yes, but, good but point. Somehow for them, they're like, like yeah. this is what we have to do, and it's so clearly for the benefit of society, right? I mean. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess that's going to be one of the challenges is to figure out well how do we tap into that. I saw a really cool um, video, you know, PSA from the city of San Francisco. I think that had lots of nice aerial drone footage of the city, and it showed you know various cool hipster San Francisco types in different contexts um, wearing their masks, and it really was framing and trying to underscore this message of we do this for each other for the community. And I think that will resonate with the USF community because it is really baked in, right? This idea of um, solidarity and kinship and, you know, thinking of our own actions in the context of how it impacts others and trying to work together for the greater good. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I have one other little thing I can say. Just in my reading of news recently, in the, in the last week, I ran across um, an article that referenced um, a UC Berkeley um, public policy professor in a study that was published in early June in the journal Nature. Okay. And I think I'm going to use this my first week of class. This is a, a quotation Um, from Solomon Tsiang, this professor at Berkeley, who said about their study, the last several months have been extraordinarily difficult, but through our individual sacrifices, people everywhere have each contributed to one of humanity's greatest collective achievements. I don't think any human endeavor has ever saved so many lives in such a short period of time. There have been huge personal costs to staying home and canceling events, but the data show that each day made a profound difference. By using science and cooperating, we changed the course of history. Yeah, that's a really great way of, of, of looking at it. And I don't mean that in like a Pollyanna sort of way. I mean, I think it's, it's true. It's right. Well, I think that, you know, the daily news is just like, you know... X million global infections and this many more deaths and the toll is growing and growing and it is all horrific, right? And so this sense of like, we've been sacrificing in different ways. And many of us, I'm sure, know someone who's gotten sick or know someone who knows someone or perhaps someone who's lost their lives. But they sort of crunched all this data and said, had we not done all of this hard stuff we were doing, 
millions more would have been infected and many, many thousands more have died. And so to kind of recognize the, the greater crisis averted, which I don't think we, I don't think I tend to think about it that much. And so just by saying all this we have done has already done a lot kind of gives me the, yeah you know, encouragement to kind of keep at it. Yeah, that's great. It hasn't been for nothing. Nope. It hasn't been for nothing. Thanks for joining us for this episode of CTE Podcast. I'm Marilyn Delore. And I'm Eugene Kim. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by the Tracy Seeley Center for Teaching Excellence at the University of San Francisco. The CTE is co-directed by Marilyn Delore and Eugene Kim. Our program assistant is Nisha Jaster. Whew, that was a long one. Editing took a little while there. I've been wishing for a magic wand that uh, when I have an idea or learn something, I could just like wave it at my computer and suddenly it would manifest in my Canvas course without me having to go down the individual tech rabbit holes to figure stuff out. Alas. Let me know how that works out. (laughs) And let me know how I can get one of those magic wands. We just got to call John Banchevich, maybe. Maybe he could order one of those for us. Right. Uh, we'll have to, eh, those things take a while. We have to do like a beta test. We have to like do a feasibility Wait, study. We have a new engineering department opening. Let's put the engineers on it. <laughs> right, right. There we go. There we go.